In today's episode of Finding Your Niche, I shared a conversation with Nick Lamoth, the Chief Marketing Officer at Legends, a fashion-forward athletic apparel brand based out of California. Nick has worked for brands like Reebok and Adidas and ran his own e-commerce agency for a while with some business partners. In the show, we discuss the differences between branding and direct marketing, as well as what brings them together. I hope you enjoy. Nick, welcome to Finding Your Niche. I'm excited to have you on today. And as I do with everybody that comes on here, I just want to give you the opportunity to introduce yourself to everybody that's listening out there. So Nick, the floor is yours. Yeah, sure. And thanks for having me. Um, yeah, so uh, my name is Nick. I'm the CMO of the Legends brand. We're an athletic apparel brand uh, based in Southern California. We're here in Los Angeles. Um, streetwear inspired performance athletic year. Um, we've been around, this is our second year. We're just about at the two year anniversary of the launch of the brand. And, um, we're experiencing a lot of growth. It's a super exciting time to, to be at the brand, obviously a competitive industry. You've got a lot of the big, you know, players who have been around for a long time. And then you've got a lot of challenger brands who are disrupting the space. And we're mm-hmm. excited to be a part of, of that, that segment, you know, smaller up and coming disruptive, um, and making some waves especially today where consumers are much more open to trying new brands and, you know, exploring, um, you know, kind of, kind of straying away from some of the more traditional brands that have maybe filled their closet for the last 20 years. And we're excited to be a part of that. And then on a personal side. Um, so I spent, you know, started my career, which I'm sure we'll get into started my career with the Adidas group on the Reebok brand and born and raised on the East coast up in new England, and then moved out here, um, to head up marketing for legends, um, you know, started the gig within the last year and, and actually just moved out to the West Coast in the last few months. Yeah, you're you're a long way from home right now. Um, it's I, so I wanna... funny. It's so funny. I walked outside today and for the first time, you know, you could like see your breath in the air. And, uh, and, and for, for weeks, everyone around here has been complaining about how cold it is. And it's like, you know, 65 degrees or something <laughs> on an hour day. And I'm kind of looking around like, are you sure back home? It's It was 32 last night. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, I know it's the same thing with with up here i mean it's probably been in the between 20 and 40 degrees the last few weeks here and nobody's been phased by it at all but there's i know there's people out in california that i know and they're just like we just got hit by this wave of cold (laughs) and it's like 64 degrees i'm like okay all right whatever um anyways i do want to go back to um you graduating college and where your mind was at at that point like I know you, you graduated with a, a journalism degree. So what was your initial intent um, or career path you saw for yourself coming out of school? Yeah. So I always wanted to be, I always wanted to work in sports and wanted to be in sports media. So whether that was, you know, I had a passion for writing and a passion for broadcasting, um, wanted to be whatever it looked like, whether it was writing for a paper, which, you know, even, even when I graduated college in 2009, papers were dying, but they were still a thing. You know, today right. they're, they're much lesser so. Um, but you know, it was the advent of podcasting. It was the start of even blogs were new, right? Like in the early 2000s when I was Mm -hmm. in college, um, early mid 2000s. So, um, it was, there was this whole wave of digital media that was coming up and that's where I wanted to be. Um, when I graduated college, it was 2009. So after the big market crash and economy crash and that started in 08, um, there just weren't any jobs. So I did what I could to freelance at some newspapers and some online publications. Um, and picked up some marketing gigs here and there more as a way to get into sports. And by that, I mean, it was, you know, doing promotions, hanging flyers. I mean, any kind of grunt work I could do just to connect into sports and then keep the writing going. So that someday I could merge them together. Um, from there, I was able to land an entry level copywriting gig at a small marketing agency in New Hampshire. 
Um, I figured I can write and, uh, you know, copywriting wasn't necessarily my passion, but it was a way in the door into a, a full-time role. Um, so in, in the mid 2000s, what was like, what, what did a copywriting job look like? Cause I know now a lot of it's, a lot of it's digital. So you'd be writing copy for, um, digital advertisements or social media posts or blog posts, but I'd love to hear a little bit about what it was in like 2010 yeah. around that time. Yeah. At that agency, it was less social. Um, not that social was, I mean, social was still a thing, right? 2009, 2010, when I took that gig, um, right. Instagram probably wasn't around at that time. I'm trying to think no, back. Think Twitter, Twitter was, was huge. Facebook was still big. Yep. You know, it, it was still there. Um, but for us, it was, um, writing copy for their, their emails that were going out for their clients. Um, mm -hmm. They were doing an event and they needed to create collateral, um, you know, printed material that they were sending out for that clients were going to be sending out. So it kind of ran the gamut of promotional and advertising language across digital and physical, digital and physical properties for, for any of their clients and the clients, it wasn't super exciting clients, right? It was banking, it was insurance, it was financial services, you know, it, it wasn't apparel and, and footwear and things that I've been able right. to you know, fortunately get into since then. Right. And I'm sure that the, the writing for the, I'll just call them, I don't want to call them boring clients, but um, <laughs> I will, but for like banks and stuff, I mean, I'm sure there's a lot of things that you need to be very conscious of legally and um, logistically that are just a pain in the butt to deal with. But anyways, coming out of the copywriting role, I know you worked for Reebok and Adidas. So I'd love to hear a little bit more about what you did there and, and the things you learned while you were working for them. Yeah. I mean, I was lucky again, the agency I was at was so small that I was able to pick up and kind of just be a self starter and get my hands dirty in email marketing. And sure, I write the copy, but go ahead and take the next step and learn how to set up and deploy and segment email. Right. So that's one example of many where you just had to kind of pick up these skills and was able to get an entry level marketing role at Reebok. Um, this was 2011. And so they were behind the game a bit in terms of e-commerce. They built their business and same with the Adidas, you know, Adidas brand built their business on the wholesale model and sports. Mm -hmm. So it was come buy our stuff at Dick's Sporting Goods or, or at a, a, an owned store, an outlet store right. or whatever. So right. um, they were behind the curve from e-com and they were trying to ramp up quickly. Um, they had a really good team that I was, I was fortunate to be a part of um, and was there for almost seven years. So worked on, worked on the Reebok brand the entire time I was there and for about two to three years of that seven, I also was on the Adidas brand, Adidas US on the e-com marketing side. So I really pretty quickly early on carved out the niche on the retention marketing side. So I was overseeing all email marketing. Um, they didn't have a loyalty program at the time and they're very basic. Again, it was it was really early days for them in terms of e-com sophistication. Um, I also oversaw the affiliate program. And, and so there was, I was able to, because I got in as one of the earlier folks, I was able to sort of grab hold of a few channels and learn them. Um, and by the end of it, um, yeah, I was doing even connecting and kind of being the digital liaison with the brand teams and with some of the trade teams and kind of making sure that we're coming out across the board digitally or the United and, you know, kind of succinct message, which was really fun to, to get it, you know, e-com marketing for some, it can get a little dry when it's so numbers driven. So being able to right. work with some of the brand teams and have some of that excitement around how we tell them the story, um, was a lot of fun. Right. And that's something I do want to come back to um, the difference between branding and direct response and um, the way you see those two things and how they interact together. Before we, we get into that, I'd love to hear a little bit about the agency that that you ran for a little while and, and jumped out and, and started for yourself, because I'm in a pretty similar position right now as, as you probably were then. So I'd love to hear um, more about 
why you decided to do that, what factors were in play and what you guys were working on. Yeah. So once I left the Adidas group, um, myself and actually two other guys that were um, my closest counterparts at the Adidas group. So one guy who was actually my, my direct manager for years. And then the other was the head of acquisition. So I was head of retention. He was acquisition and then our manager. Right. So the three of us, nice. we wanted to find a way to continue to work together. We were best friends. We still had great relationships and we had all kind of gone our separate ways, but let's find a way to still work together. So we had kind of moonlighted just as a digital growth agency. So really focused on profitable growth for clients specific to their e-com business. Um, We had a handful of clients that was part-time work, but it was a way to stay in touch and make some money on the side. Um, But we found that we were without trying getting a lot of referrals and a lot of clients wanted us to work for them. And we just became to a decision point of, are we going to do this full-time or not? Because we can't keep taking on clients and doing part-time work just with this rate. So um, we, that was in 2000 and I guess this was probably, 2017, maybe, maybe 18. Um, and we decided let's, let's take the jump. So two of us went full time and we hired a couple people as over the subsequent couple of years and grew it to, we always had a vision of staying small. Um, so we grew it to like 20 to 25 clients, um, of various size. I mean, there were some startups that were doing less than a million dollars in sales a year and some that were doing hundreds of millions of dollars a year. Um, I mean, 20 to 25 clients is still pretty significant for probably the amount of money that was going through those, their e-commerce. Um, yeah. I mean, it's, it's interesting though, because when you t- in the agency, what we found and what we had heard and what we certainly experienced firsthand is when you're super small, you're very profitable. So when you're an agency of just two or three people or even up to four or five people, but you've got, you know, 10 or so clients and almost no overhead, you're very profitable. When you get a little bit bigger than that, your profit margin comes way down because you've got to add a handful of people. And at that point you're always kind of chasing kind of the staffing and the hours allotment. And then when you get like over $10 million in, in revenue as an agency, then you become super profitable again. So we said, let's, we don't, we didn't have any aspirations of being super big. So yeah. we didn't want to have to go through the middle area of, to get to something. Right. We didn't get to. Yeah. So we said, let's stay, you know, our, ideally we were going to be 15 to 20 clients max and we ended up being 20 to 25. Okay. Really cool. Um, and before we jump into your transition over to Legends, I want to talk a little bit about branding versus direct response. And then I want to pull that into the work that you're doing now at Legends. So I'd love to hear your opinion on um, branding and direct response and then how how they're different, but then also how they, they work together um, to create a marketing strategy that's effective for companies. Yeah, well, it's, it's if you think about the evolution, right? Like, if I even go back to my own experience and call it 2012, you had this, we, I was on the working on this e-com team where we had the quote unquote, the direct response channels that we owned, right? So email, paid search, paid social was a very small play to a smaller degree back then. Um, you know, display, like all, all the digital DR channels. And then you had all the brand channels, which was you know, terrestrial TV and radio and billboards and events and inf- back, influencers back then were, were not, as heavily, you know, social back then it was like literally you're working with athletes who have a big following and they're, they're playing on every Sunday or whatever. So you had this sort of separation of church and state and we always saw, you know, Hey, we can, we can crush return on ad spend brand can't measure it. They have huge budgets. We have small budgets. There was always this sort of like friction between how these two teams operated. And I think I both saw more value in what they did. Um, as digital has become really the place where everybody plays, those two things have, have blurred so greatly. You're, almost everything you do can be can have a direct response angle because since it is digital, you probably have some means to track performance. 
Um, so with that, you know, you're going to have different expectations. Some channel might have a five to one return on ad spend, you know, expectation and one might have a one and a half. Um, but, and that's more of your brand awareness play, right? Maybe you're even, maybe you maybe you have a sub one return on your ad spend. You're okay losing those dollars, but you're measuring something else, cost per visit or net promoter score, whatever it is you're measuring. Mm -hmm. So the lines have really blurred. You still have almost everything that you can do from a brand perspective today can have some more concrete form of measurement, which makes it a little more DR. Um, and concretely, or, or sorry, I would say conversely, your quote unquote DR channels, even your, you know, your email marketing, I think everyone's putting a more heightened sense of awareness on making sure that it fits within your brand. So mm -hmm. maybe less reliant on promotions or maybe making sure your messaging is really on brand and it's not as, you know, hey, come buy our shirt. It's really tied into the message of the product and the brand. So these things have blurred together in a way that they should. It, these things should have always been kind of decoupled, but they just by nature of siloed work environments and things like KPIs, um, they were yeah. sort of kind of held, held in different regard. Yeah. You mentioned something really interesting and you said that pretty much everybody's moving to digital. Do you think there's still space for non-digital advertisements? Um, both both inside of COVID, because COVID, COVID's interesting because everybody's at home now. And so a lot of companies have had to adapt and just hammer digital because that's the only way they can communicate with their customers. But I'd love to hear your opinion on whether or not there's still space um, in the marketing world for non-digital advertisements. Yeah, I mean, 100%. I would say in a couple different ways. So do I think people are as regularly, you know, taking out full page ads in a, in a you know, a magazine? Not to the same degree, for sure. Um, unless they're adding some kind of a DR component to it. But while that the value of that is diminishing, um, there's two areas I think it's really important still. One is experiential. Um, so I know COVID has put a wrench into events, especially with our brand. We, we've built our brand on grassroots and events, and that's gone at this point. So um, that, but, but when that, whenever that comes to an end, experiential and events will be huge again and, and can be a really strong connection point. We've seen so much data about, you know, whether it's millennials or Gen Z valuing experiences over, over things. Um, so how can you pull that into your marketing and provide really great experiences? Um, that's key. That's huge. The other is I, I think these media platforms or media, um, entities, are finding ways to digitize the traditional so billboards hard to track right but some of these there some folks are taking the out of home space which is what a billboard falls into and finding ways to digitize it and let you track things a little bit more concretely so i just think yeah it's twofold yes you're going to have the offline the in-person marketing that's always going to be important but you're also going to find ways to take traditionally traditional offline channels and put measurement um, vehicles and measurement levers against them, which is going to make them more viable for, for anybody to use. Super interesting. And so I want to transition into a question that I'm super excited to ask you. Um, we've talked a lot about branding and positioning and just marketing in general. And I want to hear what you were thinking through as you came into Legends. So I'm not sure how much contact you had on Legends before you got in, but your first, let's say, month or two months um, on the job. I know Legends is still a relatively new company, so you guys probably had a lot to work through in terms of branding and positioning um, and just your marketing strategy as a whole. So I'd love to hear what you were thinking through in order to build out your marketing strategy for your company. Yeah. Yeah. I would say candidly, we're still working through a lot of these things. So, uh, but I'll take a step back before I even joined and, and what was relayed to me in part of my exploration of legends that led to me joining 
is I think they carved out a really interesting niche in the marketplace. So earlier in this, this conversation, we talked about, you've got the old guard in the athletic apparel, right? You've got Nike, Adidas, Under Armour, Reebok, et cetera. And then you've got these, this wave of disruptors. So Lululemon was probably the first really big one. And they're still they're, they're They were the first and thus are the biggest, but you've also got folks like Roan, Viore, 10,000, ASRV, all these brands that are coming up and are breaking into the space and being disruptive. Um, we, but most of those brands are charging, let's use shorts as an example, they're charging 80, 90, $100 for shorts, right? The old guard have such big market share and because of volume and whatever else they they're charging their, they have a range, but their core shorts are probably more like 35, 45, 50 bucks, right? So um, we found a space that there's this middle ground. You can still offer the exciting new brand, the challenger brand, the premium experience, at a $60 short, which is what we're selling. So you're paying a little more for that premium quality, um, but you don't have to spend hundred dollars on a pair of shorts. So from a pricing perspective, that's where we fit in really nicely. From a brand perspective, we also kind of straddle that those two lines because the old guard, I'll keep referring to them as that, are the sports forward, we make you run faster, jump higher, lift more, win at all costs. And then you've got the newer brands who tend to have a little less of an a less aggressive approach to their marketing, right? So it's you're running, you're it's hey, we make apparel for guys to do yoga in and actually feel comfortable. It's your lounge around wear. It's a little less aggressive, even in their sports lens. Yeah. And we play in the middle. We are hey, we're high performance gear, and we are big in basketball and lacrosse and football, and, and we've got pro athletes wearing our stuff all the time. But we're also a lifestyle and a athleisure look with streetwear inspiration. So. You can look good, you know, when you're not working out or when you are, but the gear's still going to hold up. So we, we found a they found a really good white space from a brand perspective of where they can fit in. We are now need, we need to do a little more research. We're in the process of doing a lot of customer research and a whole brand initiative, but we need to refine our message and you know get get this kind of locked in a little bit more clearly for the consumer to understand our true value. So that's been one of the first things I've taken on since I jumped on board here is this kind of. I won't call it repositioning. It's more clearly articulating our brand positioning. Right. And adding on top of that, what are you doing right now in order to, I'm just going to say, drive your business forward with, with your yeah. marketing? Like, how, how are you communicating with um, your customers and how are you getting people to buy? Yeah. So before I came on board, 80, maybe even 90% of spend was all paid social. Um, okay. And I think that's a really good place to start for new brands because. Yeah. That's where there's so many, there's just such an audience there and you can learn a lot by spending in some cases a little bit of money and still learn a lot depending on how you're going to set up your campaigns in terms of what messaging works, what creative works, what kind of targeting works. So great place to start. Um, they grew the business with that and influencer. So influencer for them being non-paid, it's our investors, our current and former athletes that are really well connected. Our CEO is really well connected. It have athletes reach out all the time saying, hey, I love your gear. Can I try it out? And we'll send them free product. So a really like bare minimal, you know, no tracking, no strategy, but seed the hell out of influential folks, do some really cool events and then spend money in paid social. That's how they started. Today, we're still doing that stuff, but we've diversified our channel mix digitally. So even some of the basics like ramping up paid search, um, you know, display retargeting, right? A really basic, less incremental channel, but make sure you're capturing the demand that's in the market. Um, some of these newer initiatives that we're gonna get into is launching an ambassador program uh, within the next 60 days, which we think will be a really big growth lever for next year. Um, we're thinking about what does loyalty look like for us? I don't like the traditional, for this brand, I don't like the traditional you know, 
buy more and earn rewards sort of, you know, punch cardy approach. Um, mm-hmm. But can we, we have such access to, again, amazing events and amazing people and amazing product and partners. How do we surprise and delight our most valuable and loyal buyers by you know, leveraging those those other entities that we have and providing access, free product, discounted product, whatever it might be. Um, so that's some of the things we're thinking about for next year. Cool. How are you guys going to, who are you guys going to try to target and with your ambassador program? So I've built it out, I guess. So like I talked about, we're always going to have these really influential NFL athlete, NBA athlete who reaches out and wants right. our gear. And we're always going to give them, we'll give them gear, but we, because we don't tr- sponsor athletes in the traditional sense, like we don't pay here's a hundred thousand dollars to wear our stuff for the next year. Um, so that's like its own kind of program. The ambassador program is more people who range from say 5,000 to a hundred thousand of an audience socially, um, or maybe they have more of an offline audience. They're a really influential trainer that trains, you know, pro athletes, even if they don't have a big social following. And we've kind of split it up into verticals of sports fitness. And I know there's, there's some gray lines there, but if you can define sports and fitness as two different categories mm-hmm. and then um, art, which for us, art is typically like street art or music, um, graffiti art, that sort of stuff. <clears throat> and then the fourth bucket being surf, skate and outdoor. Um, so that whole category. So we'll look for folks across those four verticals that align with our brand values and our look and then um, different ranges of audience. And then, we're going to learn some stuff. I mean, that's our going in plan, but you, know, you always have a plan and it, and it changes as you, as you learn things. So we'll see a year from now, we might have a totally different strategy, but that's what we're rolling out. Right. Well, you guys are, I mean, you're still only two years into it. So there's still a ton to learn. I'm sure. Um, are you fully e-commerce right now or do you have um, your goods in any stores? We don't have any stores. We don't own any stores um, and we really don't do traditional wholesale. So you're not going to find us in a, you know, a Dick Sporting Goods or even a trend account like a, a high-end sneaker boutique right now. We really want to control the customer experience. Our number one pillar as a brand is the customer experience. So we have our own fulfillment center right here on the property. We don't use a third-party logistics company that allows us to get products out the door super fast. Um, we want to own the customer experience digitally. So all almost everybody that's buying is coming directly to us and we can really see that end to end. Um, so for now, that's what we do. We, we also want to control kind of where we're showing up and how we're showing up in the marketplace. We still need to land our brand. So that's important. Um, you know, we have some folks that reach out that want to buy a few hundred units for their gym and they want to put their, their gym logo on it and they're not selling them. Like we, so we have some non e-com, you know, more bulk sales, some teams, things like that, but you know, 90, percent of our business is direct to consumer online cool really cool uh well yeah. well that's all i have for you nick this has been just a super super fascinating conversation for me because we dove into a lot of things uh marketing specific and then we also learned a little bit about you and all the things that are happening over at legends um so thank you for coming on i want to close it out with one last question for you what is the one thing in marketing that is being underutilized by people right now that every company should be doing? Um, one thing being underutilized. Um, I guess I would say, I don't know if it's underutilized is the right word, but I would say not. I think right now everyone's so focused on customer acquisition um, whether it's because they have VC funding and it's all about growth or they want to be, a, they want to sell their brand in a couple of years and be acquired. So it's all about growth. I think um, it's easy for folks to overlook the retention side of the house. 
Um, maybe I'm guilty of it too, right? I said, we're going to launch an ambassador program and then we're going to look at maybe launching some sort of loyalty, right? Taking care of your existing customers and driving that lifetime value just opens up so many doors in terms of what you can do economically and how it changes, changes the shape of your business. Um, I think everyone's in this acquire now, get more customers, get more customers as cheaply as you can, that um, less attention is being paid to keep the ones we have and really extend that lifetime value. So I guess I, that, that's where I would go with it. Awesome. Awesome. Well, Nick, thanks for coming on today. Um, if you want to stick around for a few minutes afterwards, I'll, I'm happy to chat. And you've got a customer in me now. So in terms of lifetime value, I'm not sure how much I will uh, throw your way, but I, I think you got a customer in me for the rest of my life. You guys have an incredible brand. Thanks, Jake. I appreciate it. You bet. Hey, this is Jake. Uh, thank you for listening to today's episode of Finding Your Niche. If you enjoyed it, be sure to subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. In the meantime, I hope you have a great rest of your week, and I'll see you next time. Well, I won't actually see you, but you get the point. Have a great week.